Welcome to the show. This is the Goodwin Podcast, and I am Nico, your host. Thank you so much for joining. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe, share the episodes you like, you know, throw a comment out there. And uh, this episode, we will be going into, I'll be sharing one of the worst things I've ever been a part of. Um, and, and there's a reason to this because I'm getting the sense, um, that people, you know, people are reaching out to me now and they're asking me for advice. And I just want a gentle reminder that, you know, there's evidence to support the fact that I'm a shithead and that I've been a part of, and, and this is not, I noticed that there's a lot of people that are like, I'm an idiot. Don't listen to me. And then they go into like some, some pretty strong philosophical rants. It's not just that it's people are reaching out to me with questions and it seems like they might need a reminder that failure is, is so important. Like losing, if you will, is important. It it keeps you hungry. It guides you in your directions, in your paths that when you're laying in bed at night and you're just about to drift to sleep and then you remember something cringing you go oh out loud oh you know there seems to be a purpose of that it's like the banks of a river of life you know so don't don't fully try to deny yourself uh the stumbling and the rejection and uh you know my advice is is always the same with wearing in a different place. I basically ask questions so that a person can answer their questions themselves. It's always an attempt to reorientate the uh, the person reaching out as the solution as well. That's it. That and that will always be the answer. The answer is you. Okay. And and like I said, it wears different masks, and sometimes I share experience, you know, that I've been through. Um, but like someone will reach out and be like, "Hey, what should I do with this girl <laughs> or, or woman or, or man?" But I was thinking of one in particular. He's like, he's like, I've been with this this woman for a long time, and or for some time, and everything's great. She's kind. She's caring. Compassionate. Uh, we have good conversation, but the sexual chemistry isn't there. What should I, what should I do? Don't know. Can't possibly know. He's from Australia too. It's like, <laughs> don't know. I mean, and so what do I do? Instead of just instead of just ignoring the message, right? Which also might be valuable as a non-answer. Um, but I answer the message. I say, I don't know enough about this situation. I don't, I don't know, but I'd be willing to hear more details. I have had three relationships in my life. I've had three girlfriends. And with one of them, um, it was a similar situation. There just wasn't, it wasn't, the frequency in which we wanted sex, it very, it, it, it differed greatly. Um, at that time, I felt like I needed 
sexual interaction, what I maybe have needed was some sort of physical intimacy and not necessarily like penetrative sex. And I might not have been able to communicate that or build up that, that, uh, attraction or, or we just weren't compatible. So I, and it was a particular relationship without getting into many details, like yeast infections are a thing. That's all I'll say. And some women can't have sex too much because, uh, I mean, it causes them, it causes them discomfort and it's not worth it. So our, our sexual frequency varied quite a bit. And this, in a lot of ways, call it what it is, shallow or what have you, or whether it was an indicator of a much greater uh, thing, this led to our separation, in my opinion, in a lot of ways, because the sexual frequency was, was so infrequent from my perspective that I carried around this resentment and animosity and, you know, what kind of relationship can flourish in that. Now, I do want there to be a distinction because sexual frequency does seem to be important, but if you, but also allow your sexual relationship to grow. Like, there, there might be a rule of thumb, like, in the first three months, if you're not, like, like, kind of all over each other, completely infatuated, fucking like rabbits, or, or just like in that, if you're not fully feeling that honeymoon phase, like, I've heard people tell me then that's not the person for you. There's not the chemistry there. But eventually things simmer, simmer down. And, and my point is frequency of sex, it might be something. Frequency of intimacy, there might be something there. But if you just feel like you guys are having a lot of sex, the frequency's there, but the sex isn't great or it isn't what X, Y, or Z. Allow yourself time to develop in that aspect. Trust takes time. It takes so much time to build. And even when you think you trust someone fully, like you've been going out for a year, right? You guys even, you spend every day together. You feel like, oh man, I trust this person so much. There's no way like we can trust each other even more. We trust each other so much. It goes deeper. I, a lot of times you don't even realize you're fronting or the walls you have until there's like trust is established and it's established over time. I'm in a six year relationship right now. And as much as I thought I trusted, I I mean, I thought we trusted each other like in year one, which we probably did. We've grown in trust so much. We trust takes going through some shit. It takes some conflict plus conflict resolution. Conflict is inevitable. You don't have to seek it out. But as long as you guys can make it through it, this is how trust is built. And with deeper amount of trust, that sexual experience gets better. So I guess if I ha- I'm throwing out like a general rule here, but like if the frequency is not there, if you guys can't like align on how much you want to have sex or if there's like if it's kind of, there's just a big difference in, in 
the amount of intimacy people need, maybe that's something of incompatibility, maybe. But if the if you guys are able to show intimacy at like a, a similar level, but you feel like you're just not, the chemistry isn't there, I'd say go a little further. You know, stick maybe stick with it. Especially if they have a lot of other redeeming qualities. Like they're kind and etc. So, so yesterday was a, a, a pretty strange day in terms of there, I mean, there's just a rare occurrence that happened. I go on a walk every single day pretty much. I have a dog, so it's like I do go on a walk every day. Um, and I have a forest behind my house, so uh, it's a lot of times it's off leash and we just we peruse around the forest. There are a few trails, some deer paths that we walk down and do some exploring. And walking, you know, in similar spots, my dog and I, we stumbled upon a deer skeleton but it wasn't just a deer skeleton it was a skull a full vertebrae ribs and legs everything was stripped down to the bone everything except the bottom quarter of the legs still had skin tendon and hooves if you want a visual it's graphic but i did post it on my instagram with a disclaimer about how it be it being graphic but i had never seen a skeleton stripped down to its bones but the skin and hooves and it was like if you just looked at the hooves it's like oh that's a living deer i i ended up after examining it for a while, there was no decay, no maggots or anything. So it was it was like a day old, maybe less fresh kill. And these coyotes or wolves, they just, oh my God, down to the bone. Nothing left except the skin on what would be our forearms and, and hooves. And I ended up picking it up, and there was still pliability in it. The, the fur was still soft. Like, it was just such a surreal experience to see the contrast of, like, skeleton, nothing left, and then, like, full foot. Deer foot. And I just, like, sat there for so long. It was one of those moments where you just, like, kind of... Um, I don't know. It's not a freeze. It's not a flight. It's not a, it's not a fight. It's just like a, a presence or something. And, and to me in my mind, like I wasn't disgusted or scared or anything. Cause you know, I've made a lot of strides eating meat lately. Like I, I rejected meat. I did the vegetarian thing. I did the vegan thing. Um, for a while, it did not serve me. I have a lot of doubts about it now, but at the time it felt like the right thing to do. And so I've come a, a, lo- a long way of, uh, 
kind of accepting that death feeds life. Death feeds life. And even farming and growing my own fruit, like fruits and vegetables, it's like I kill, I take the fruit. Fruit's kind of a weird one, but like I think about like carrots or onions or anything where I have to harvest the whole plant pretty much to, I I kill the plant in order to eat it, right? I, I mean, we can, that's clear, right? It's like, I hear the one argument that just doesn't make sense for me in veganism and vegetarianism is like, well, animals' lives matter and you shouldn't create a hierarchy over animals. You're no better than animals. And I want to go one step further and say, but you're creating a hierarchy over plants. If you're going to acknowledge an animal consciousness because it's mobile because it has a central nervous system, right? Is the life of a plant lesser? Like, why can't you... Like, the circle of life, if you don't want to build a pyramid, right, of hierarchy, like the circle of life includes plants, everything's on the same level. So I find it interesting that you're willing to put a hierarchy over, you know... Uh, making a cow more prestigious than a Brussels sprout plant or whatever, you know? And I eat it all. Like I kind of, as I'm talking about this, like I can definitely see the validation in there, right? Like the nervous system thing, like a cow can interact with you and it's very visible. But I take some plant medicines, right? And I'm all of a sudden I'm talking to the spirit of the radish, you know? And the spirit of the radish doesn't seem so mundane or or low intelligence. You know, it seems just as valid. So I find this deer carcass and part of me is like, do I take any of it? Like there's a skull there. It's kind of, it's kind of cool. Like the hooves being completely intact. Like those also seem kind of cool. So I'm kind of sitting there reflecting on it. And also I'm, I'm brewing up a little bit of, I guess, superstition. I want some genuine feedback on this, but when you see things in nature, how much value is in it to make it a sign of something else? Humans, like in a critical way, humans are meaning-making machines, right? So we see something and we and we say, oh, that relates to me in in this way. Or, oh, that makes sense. Like hindsight's twenty twenty. Like, oh, that makes sense now that I saw that uh, picture of an elephant because I... I don't know, like elephant, (laughs) because someone gave me a shirt that had an elephant on it for my birthday. Like, wow, what are the chances? Like, what are the chances that uh, I was just thinking about that and and now it's come to be? And and I waver in between. It's like, 
it does feel like symbology and synchronicity and synchro destiny is there. And I do believe in the magic and the mystery, but I'm also weary to put too much weight into it because when I see a deer carcass, a deer carcass with its feet still intact, I'm like, what does this mean? Like, it doesn't feel warm and lovely. It feels a little bit scary. And so I kind of just sat there with, it's like in this grasslands field um, in, near the forest behind my house. And, you know, I ended up leaving, I ended up leaving it after picking it up and kind of like pulling it apart and seeing if there's anything and like touching it, interacting with it. I ended up leaving it, but I, I took some pictures and I posted them and, um, A friend reached out and he said, hey, is that skull, I mean, is there a way I can get that skull? And I said, I felt kind of weird about taking about it, um, but I'll go there tomorrow and see if it's still there, because I thought if I figured the coyotes would come back and eat the bones, and if it's still there, uh, yeah, I'll consider it, but you have to give some sort of sacrifice to the earth or, or, or something. There has to be some sort of exchange. Um, to make me feel better about it. And so I went out there today and the skull was still there, but I realized the, there was still like brains inside of it. And a quarter of the jaw was missing, or I'm sorry, three quarters of the jaw were missing. There was only a quarter left. The coyotes really went in on it. And I ended up taking it and I'm growing my own tobacco uh, in my closet, you can probably see the light above my right shoulder. That's a uh, that's a sunlight sun lamp for growing tobacco. And one of my tobaccos started flowering this morning. And you want to pick off the flowers because uh, it, it increases the potency of the leaves, which is what you end up harvesting and drying uh, for smoking. But tobacco is really important ceremoniously. It's used um, for prayer. And so I picked off the flowers and the skull. I brought them to the skull. I buried the skull so that the brains can be eaten out pretty much in a year or two so I can give it to my friends. So I buried it with the tobacco and uh, had a little funeral today. So I had a little bit of funeral. And I've done this a lot of times. And I, this is not boasting because it's just what I, I've done. I don't know if this is weird, but I, I bury like almost every dead animal I see besides roadkill. You know, if I stumble across any animal, I'll have a little funeral for it. I don't, it must make me feel better in some way. I don't know why I do it, but I've done it for a very long time now. Um, some sort of empathy or sympathy practice to, uh, bring to help myself understand death or build a little peace within myself. And so I had one today. I buried the skull with a little bit of tobacco with a tobacco flower, said a little prayer and, um, and I don't know. <laughs> So something did spooky, something spooky or something tragic did happen. 
So I found these remains. I'm like, what does this mean? Is to find death like this and like kind of like horrific death, right? To find a skeleton still with its feet, whatever. I've said it once already. And it's kind of horrific. And I'm like, I don't know what the meaning of this is. And I, and I come home and I get a call and I'm not going to get into any details here, but a family friend um, committed suicide. And damn, that's all. I mean, that's all I'll say about it. Um, Cause it's tra it's, it's tragic, particularly tragic, a young, younger, younger than me. Um, a man took his life and, um, it's kind of strange, right? It's kind of strange to happen upon a symbol of death and then to receive news of death. So it, it keeps like, uh, the door open for the symbology of life and the symbology of nature as it pertains to the rest of my life. And, uh, yeah, so prayers to that family. Um, and yeah, so the funeral that I, I held today was not only for the deer, but it was also for, uh, the family and, the passing of the young man, uh, transitioning into a place or something, um, easier, more free, more peaceful somehow and in a good way. And, and the mantra death feeds life. It seems to kind of crumple when like suicides involved, right? Because human death, it doesn't really feed life anymore. Like through embalming techniques and like preservation and mummification, modern day mummification and like putting makeup on a dead body and stuff. It's like we don't even get the chance to deteriorate back into the earth, at least physically. And, and then we're sealed in a casket and yeah, it's just human death almost doesn't feed life as it is right now. And yeah, it kind of doesn't make sense that mantra that came to me upon, and how I easily I simplified like this deer's death, um, so well, you know, death feeds life. Those coyotes needed food, or they would have they wouldn't have made it through the winter. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. And then you get news about a human dying. Um, yeah, it just makes it just didn't doesn't seem to perfectly add up. I don't understand the synchronicity exactly. Uh, maybe nor do I need to. Maybe nor do you need to. <laughs> Oh, I don't know what to make about that. I, I want to like continue to talk about suicide and my own experience with it. And, um, 
just find a way to like bring peace to people to encourage them to keep going to keep to practice gratitude in a way that you can feel it and understand it even on your low low days and it's really just really not possible to give that to someone i don't know this this year's been tough on on everyone it's been tough on everyone i want i need to like clear the air because i wanted to talk about just like a shitty thing i did in college And, uh, and I will onward last thing. If, if there is, if there's thoughts of suicide, I'm not convinced that like there's anyone who doesn't think about it at least once in their life. I feel like everyone can empathize and relate on some level to the idea of not wanting to be here. And it kind of pains me when I when I hear people say, oh, I just don't understand, I just don't understand. It's like, maybe try to understand, you know? Maybe shut, shut up because you not understanding and your confusion isn't helping. Maybe look into your heart a little bit and see that the pain that exists Maybe the pain that you've suppressed, maybe the pain that you're continuing to suppress by saying you don't understand. Maybe dig a little deep and empathize so that you can truly sympathize with the family and sympathize with the loss and hopefully eventually get to a place of celebration of death. I mean, that's the goal for me, right? To get to a place to fully accept and to find a sense of celebration in the in the passing or in the transition into either nothingness or something something else so in college i did some pretty questionable things some pretty shitty things you know um you don't know yet but maybe you can imagine i i spent most of my time drinking and out in bars and trying to um pick you know pick up women be intimate and and failing and um just doing stupid shit drinking way too much by anyone's standards really and i joined a frat in the first year of the frat Every, every year in the frat, we did this thing called, uh, what was it called? Every year we went on a trip as a frat to the Lake of the Ozarks, which if you've never been or don't know, it's it's in Missouri. It is a long, like 100-mile lake, but it, it winds almost like a river, and it gets wide at some points, and there's a lot of inlets and outlets, and there's certain coves of this lake. It's a huge drinking lake. There's Party Cove. It's in some country songs. And uh, it's like a spring, it's a perennial spring break, right? Destination. People, they tie up their boats together. Women take their tops off, beer bongs, 
white people, just country music. It's, it's that. And I've been there, right? My family used to go there every 4th of July. Uh, this was high schoolish and I, uh, didn't really party much, but actually when I was, when we first went down there, I, I went down with a couple friends and we had this little scheme. We, we weren't old enough to drink, but we were old enough to cause mischief. And we rented a boat. My family rented a boat and they'd let us take it out sometimes during the day for a couple hours. And we would go to different bars on the lake and we'd run schemes. This is so shitty and so stupid. We'd, we'd run schemes to steal posters off their walls or steal signs from them. And we would, I mean, we were pretty successful in the terms of we, we ended up going home with like 30 signs, 30 posters, like all alcohol posters. Some of them didn't make sense. They were like $5 shots of garbage like the schedule like schedules printed on like smearing off ice posters with the bar name on it like it didn't make sense they weren't artistic they were like advertisements and they cost the bar money and we were shitty high school kids who had nothing better to do so we would go to these bars in the middle of the day two people would be a distraction And one person would disassemble the posters from the wall, roll it up, and then tuck it into swimsuit, put their shirt over it. And we ran this, like, (laughs) shitty scheme. This is not even the shitty thing I did in college, but this may be, talk about the ripple effects of life. This is how I spent my first times in Lake of the Ozarks, so I guess it makes sense that I have to go back to Lake Lake of the Ozarks and have, like, a cleansing ceremony and ask for forgiveness from the lake and ask for forgiveness from the community because it gets worse in college. What we would do is we would rent Greyhound buses. There's let's say there was a hundred guys in the frat and there probably was maybe even more. We would rent three or four buses and drive with dates. We would all, Oh, it's called formal. And we would get dates and we would drive down to the Lake of the Ozarks. And we rented out motels and hotels. And it was like a nine-hour trip down to the Lake of the Ozarks. And we would just get blind, blind drunk on the buses. So drunk. Oh, my God. The first year on the bus, I brought a beer bong. And I was some sort of – and I became like – the beer bong guy. I made myself, I like carved out a little niche for me. Like I have the beer bong and everyone gets one. And there was some sort of power with like putting a tube in someone's throat and pouring beer in it. And how, how shitty, but, um, it's what I did at that time to feel better about myself. And it got to the point where we got so drunk that I ended up giving someone a beer bong in their butt. And that's extremely dangerous, by the way. I didn't know it at the time, but your large intestine absorbs rapidly. So you can get alcohol poisoning by ingesting alcohol through your butt. And I put a beer bong in someone's butt and I poured a beer in it. And, uh, I don't know if I'll ever be forgiven for that. 
from the Lord. I, I think I, I bring a little levity to it now. The person's okay and they consented. Um, but what, what, what was, what were we doing? So that's how this trip started out and it gets worse. So we get to the hotel. It's a small hotel on the lake and we rent out pretty much the whole thing. There's maybe 40 rooms and we got them all. All right. The, the frat has them all. You're either sharing, you're with your dates, um, you got your own bed and you're sharing or, or whatever. And you, we pretty much drank the whole weekend and, and then we left. Now, what did we do to pass the time as alcoholic late teens and very early 20 year olds, young adults? Well, we destroyed things. Somehow, some way. I don't know if you if you're a guy, you may have experienced this, or if you've ever been in like a situation that like feels super tense, and all of a sudden something breaks or something smashes, it can trigger this tidal wave of destruction. Sometimes when things are balancing on a rager's edge, it just takes like a moment, like a little push. I mean, this might be getting too real because, I mean, the riots, there are um, rabble rousers. There's people who push things over the edge to justify brutal force. And that's super fucked up. And all I'm pointing at is the feeling of the tension building. And then all of a sudden someone does something and then it turns into chaos because we were drinking, having a decent time in these like this dorm style hotel, small hotel, and a bunch of meatheads were in, in my frat, and all of a sudden, someone kicks someone's door down as a joke. It's not their door, it's the hotel's door, but someone kicks someone's door down. By the end of the weekend, so the freshman and sophomore class was in one building. And that there might have been four, um 30 rooms. I don't I don't know the amount of rooms. 50, 70. But there was 20 in one hallway and maybe 10 in, in another hallway. There was only one door left on its hinges. One door out of 30 or 40 every other door had been smashed glass littered the hallways littered it instead of carpet there was glass furniture thrown into the lake out windows smashed broken i have no idea how people ended up okay But there are holes in the walls, just complete, complete destruction of this motel. So sad. So, so tragic. And we really didn't 
fully comprehend the destruction that we had caused until the owner and his wife, the elderly owner and his elderly wife, came back on the Monday to see what we had done, only to drop to the floor and start weeping. I don't know if anyone from the fraternity is listening to this, but we need to repent. How did, okay, let's, how did we get there? Now, as a freshman and and sophomore in, in this frat, you're kind of, you're powerless, right? There's a hierarchy that's imposed. There's a certain amount of hazing to keep you in check and like, so you earn your chops or whatever. And a lot of the hazing was destructive. It was drinking. It was, it was, there's just such a stupidity that's, that grows in fraternities. I don't, maybe there's some good ones out there. I haven't seen many. There's just, what a terrible idea. What a terrible, terrible idea to have boys leading boys. It's like having horses babysit dogs you know it's just such a stupid idea to have no true elder true guidance your elder is 22 years old that is the ranking official of fraternities or at least the on-field general of fraternities so maybe the feeling of powerlessness plus the encouragement to just get blind, wasted, and drunk, led, leads to this like destructive element. I remember one other time I experienced this. And, and by the way, when you're destroying stuff, because I partook, I maybe broke four or five doors. I did, I was, I'm guilty. Guilty as charged. I remember... <laughs> I was lifting a tremendous amount of weight at that uh, at that point, and uh, I think someone like this meathead that I, I was really good friends with. I used to lift with him all the time. He's like, he just egging me on, and he basically got me to throw a guy. Like, he wasn't a small guy; he was taller than me, but he was thin. I threw him across a room and into a radiator, like up and on. That's so. I'm sorry to him. And um, I was, if you're, when you're destroying stuff, it feels so like the blind fire and rage of a young man who like has genuine anger. There might be something to it, but at the, like there might be something to it at a young age. Like you might need to like, punch your bed sometimes or like beat up your pillow or maybe even, you know, break a thing or two. But if that's your go-to therapy, uh, if you are Kali destroyer of worlds, like you're on a path of destruction yourself. I don't think it's any long lasting therapeutic, uh, um, prescription. I think there's a, there's a level of internal analysis and 
and sitting and truly feeling your emotions, truly feeling that anger, which might be sadness and truly feeling that sadness and allowing yourself to emote and understand and, and, uh, and not shying away or running away or fighting away from it or struggling. I think a bit of that will be needed. Um, if you want to overcome your anger or trauma somehow in a good way. And there was one other time I was in, I was visiting Indiana and uh, the University of Indiana and I was at this kind of stranger's house and we went into their basement and now two of the roommates were with us. So it was a house with like five guys in it and two of the guys were with us and they got drunk and all of a sudden they started like breaking glasses and it took one glass to be broken. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> one glass to be broken. Every single thing in the basement was destroyed. We had hockey sticks and baseball bats and we just beat the sh- beat furniture into oblivion, smashed anything that could be smashed. Again, just fucking destruction. For the sake of destruction. And it was fun. Like it was really fun. And, and it was strange because it was the pe- two of the people who lived in the house were encouraging it. So it felt right. And I remember the other two roommates coming down or one of the roommates coming down and seeing what we had done. And again, not even angry just so sad it's just so sad and I had known this guy since like little league baseball and for him to see me with like come down and I have like a drunken smile of like destruction in my eyes along with like four or five if it was just me you'd probably been so mad but there was like four or five of us including the two roommates just destroying shit Man. So death feeds life. Destruction feeds creation. I'm not, I don't want to deny like the, the destruction, the Kali, Kali energy. I think there's no use in denying it. Like even our cells have to be, when they die, they have to be eaten. They have to be consumed. Disease has to be swallowed up and destroyed in the body for health. Chaos at one level can be order at a higher level and vice versa. This episode is crazy. It's a little weird. (laughs) Oh. Oh, that felt good. God, sneezes are... If you stop yourself from sneezing, this I, I, I will pray for you. I pray for you right now. Please let your sneeze out. Please be free. I'm in a room by myself, so I didn't even cover my nose. But I'll cover my nose. I'll cover my mouth. 
I'll do the shirt over the face. But if you're not letting your sneezes out, you're denying yourself pleasure of existence. Sneezing is so pleasurable. It's such, Your body wants to do it so bad. It wants to get something out. Please don't deny yourself a sneeze. I hear, ah, oh, that no, nothing pains my heart and chest to hear someone holding back on a sneeze. And then they do it like five times in a row. I'm like, please, please let it out. Please be free. Because I don't think it stops there. I think someone who does can't let themselves sneeze is someone that can't let themselves feel and accept pleasure in their life. Please let yourself sneeze. Let it out. Let it out. Please. And I, and I encourage it every time. Every time I see someone, I go, hey, please, please let that, let it go. Whatever is in there doesn't need to be there anymore. You need to let that shit go. And it starts with sneezing. So if you take anything from this convoluted, cre- scary, enlightening episode, it's something practical. And that's, Please let yourself sneeze. This has been the good wind.